morning again, and uh, it is my privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you guys this morning, as uh, Pastor Corey obviously is with us, but on sabbatical, so he's stepped back from teaching and uh, studying each week so that he can just allow the Lord just to pour into him and uh, just receive vision and uh, and guidance and direction from the Lord. So uh, we are going to be in the book of John, chapter 9. We're going to be reading a Bible story together this morning. Uh, But what I love about the Word of God is that uh, the stories that are written are not just stories that we can read and be entertained. You know, look at the life and testimony of Jesus and And look at that and go, oh, wasn't he a nice man? Oh, that's so neat. I'm so glad he helped that guy. Look at that. Some people do look at at the Bible as simply that, just stories and uh, neat little things that we can look at and just try and take away something positive. But God says his word is so much more than that. It is so much deeper. And uh, so this morning, we're going to look at the story of a man whose complete sole purpose of his life was to give glory to God through what he had gone through, through his suffering and through his healing, through his, his misery and his joy. And, uh, you know, as we look at Jesus walk around the earth in, in the Bible, um, you know, when he was going around and ministering to people so often, he would go against the popular way of thinking. There was a way that people just commonly interpreted the world and the things around them. And so often Jesus was shaking up that viewpoint, that worldview, if you will. In the Jewish society at the time, you had a culture that was, it was loosely based on the teachings of God. There was kind of a standard of morality that went through the culture and in an honoring of God. And yet, at the time when Jesus stepped into the world, the culture was so much more based on the teachings of man and men's interpretation of what God said than what God actually said. And and so, uh, let's go ahead and get into this in uh, John chapter 9. We're going to start out in verse 1 and By the grace of God, we're going to get all the way through the end of the chapter this morning. (laughs) And it says, as he, Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for the word that you have preserved for us. God, this was written many centuries ago, and yet here it is in its complete form, ready for us to be ministered to. And Lord, we know that we need your Holy Spirit to be able to grasp these things, to understand them, but most importantly, to apply them to our lives. 
Lord, to, to walk out of here differently than we came in. God, we need your power. We need the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as they're going by, they see this man who they all knew had been born blind. He was blind from birth. It wasn't an accident and nothing happened to him per se. He was born blind. And as they're walking by, the disciples ask Jesus a question. And they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So first off, they, they ask this question, but their question starts off with some huge presumptions. It's, it's almost like they're thinking, okay, I don't want to ask Jesus if someone sinned for this to happen, because we know that someone sinned big time for this to happen. So instead of asking if it was sin, we'll just ask who's responsible for the sin that caused this. You know, as Jesus walked with the disciples, he was constantly having to break them away from their way of thinking that they were accustomed to. They had been raised with this doctrine of works-based salvation and works-based punishment. Because in, in the Bible, we're told there's good works and there's also evil works. You know, people in the book of Revelation, it says, will be punished for their works. When Jesus said to many of the churches who were doing evil things, he would say, I know your works. I know what you're doing. But what the disciples were thinking at the time was if you have good works, only good things will happen to you. If you have bad works, bad things will happen to you. And so this question, it starts off with a presumption, but there's also a big implication behind their question because the implication is that if someone sinned, or is responsible for their own suffering, then they shouldn't help. And it's really easy to see why they, they thought this. Many of them thought that they could earn God's favor and God's blessing just by obeying the law. So as this reasoning goes, if someone was handicapped or sick or persecuted or poor or whatever it was, um, Obviously, they weren't obeying the law. That's why they were in the situation that they were in. And therefore, they're getting what they deserved. And really, when you look at the beliefs behind Buddhism, this is one of the main tenets of their faith is karma. They believe that if you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. If bad is happening to you and you haven't really done anything bad, it's because of something bad that you've done in a previous life that is now being visited upon you. And in many, many ways in Buddhist countries, there is no concern for the plight of the needy, the sick, the helpless, the poor, the orphan, because they simply assume they're working off bad karma. 
and I'm actually doing them a disservice if I help them because that means they've got more bad karma that they're going to have to work off because I've eased their suffering. And so I'm just going to let them get through this so that their next life can be better. And you really see this worked out. I have friends who have done a lot of ministry in, in Thailand, and, and there is no concern for the orphans there. They run an orphanage. And, uh, and there's no concern for, for orphans or sick or uh, handicapped. It, they just look at them as, well, you're cursed. And in many ways, this is how the disciples were looking at this man. And, and even though they didn't believe the exact same things in, in effect, they were living the exact same way. But as we know, Jesus was never trapped within uh, the, the thoughts of society. He was never trapped by what popular opinion said that he should do. And so he doesn't just serve or help those who deserve it. If that were the case, we all know none of us would be helped by God because none of us truly deserves his help, his love, his mercy. And, and so as we go through this world, we need to ask Jesus to give us his eyes for the world that we're in, for the people that we see. It's so easy to get our worldview from a news station. When, when it's us versus them and we just see, well, that's the enemy. And, and I know we've said this up here before, but you know, there, there is a spirit at work that is the enemy, but people are not our enemy. People are ones for whom Christ died. And so we need to see the world through his eyes. Aren't you glad that when Christ saw you, he saw beyond your sin and saw you as somebody that you were worth dying for? And, and so as we go through this world, we need to have Jesus's eyes because the world is not asking us to love it, is it? <laughs> It's quite the opposite, you know? The world is making itself our enemy. And when I wanna make a distinction between the world and the people in the world, there is a system of the world which is our enemy. But the people of the world are the ones that Jesus died for. And so at the same time, we also need to ask God to give us his eyes for our own situations, the things that we go through trials and tribulations, or even in seasons of joy and blessing, to, to look at those and say, God, what are you doing here? How are you trying to work in my life through the situation that I'm in? And, and what are you going to accomplish through me? And this guy, Jesus says that he was born to reveal the glory of God, to declare the works of God. That was, that was the whole purpose behind him being born blind. It wasn't punishment. Jesus knew that there was an appointment, a date, a time that he was going to heal this man and that God was going to be glorified through it. And uh, yet at the same time, it's easy to kind of sit back too and think, well, God can only be glorified then if the person is healed. No, not at all. In fact, I remember as, as John was uh, praying for his dad, uh, Lawrence, who played bass with us up here and was just 
made such an impact in the short time that he was here with us. He, he was praying for his dad and, and just saying, God, we know that you can heal him, but even if you don't, you're glorified. And, and that's exactly what happened. God said, no, I'm taking him home. And God was still glorified. And, and so in this man's life, God could be no less glorified if he had remained blind, but it was God's will that he was going to heal him. Sorry to you know, ruin that part of the story, but we'll get into that right now. In verse six, it says, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed and came back seeing. And so here, Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud from the saliva. And uh, this was not the only blind man that Jesus healed. There was uh, another guy in the book of Mark that uh, Jesus actually spit right in his eyes on that one. <laughs> and it's like, well, thank you, I think. <laughs> but uh, so Jesus didn't really heal the same way twice. And everything that Jesus did in his life was on purpose. I believe from the moment he was born until the moment that he ascended, everything that he did was on purpose. And I think even before he came down to this earth and even into all of eternity, everything that God does is with purpose. He doesn't do anything just meaningless. And so when he healed this man, it was different than before. And I believe the reason behind that is that he doesn't want us latching onto some kind of formula for how to live our lives and work the works of God. He wants us to live in a fresh new way every single day. You know, it's very similar to the manna that, that dropped from the sky as the Israelites were in the wilderness. That it, it came down fresh every single day, except for the Sabbath, and then there was enough. Uh, but it would come down fresh. And if you tried to hoard it and store it for the next day, it was putrid, it was rotten. And, and what is being shown through that story is that we need Jesus's bread of life. We need him every single day. If we say, oh, I ate yesterday, well, we're gonna fall down on our faces when we're trying to work today. Or even if it's like, oh, I stored some up from yesterday, it's putrid and rotten by the next day. We need him every single day. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but so often I would much rather just have a little checklist that I could go down and go, I did that, 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 and that, and that. I don't know how many of you guys use like that checklist on uh, the notes app on your phone. It's like, I use that all the time and it's got, you can even punch the little check marks and like, okay, I did that, 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 that. I am successful today. And it's like, as Christians, so often we want that so that we can say, I am a successful Christian. Look at that, I checked all my boxes. But Jesus is like, no, you lean on me every single day. You have to come to me if you want to receive what you need for today. And it's easy to look at even a great work of God that happened in the past. Whether you look at the Great Awakening or the, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, you know, and think, man, if we, if we could just get another Chuck Smith and get a group of hippies together here, we can, we can make that happen again. We can have a tent and like, we, we kind of need a tent. We've got property, so let's do it. <laughs> but 
that, that's not going to be successful if we're co- trying to go on, on past victories. We have to work fresh today with where God is leading us, not where God led other people in the past. He wants to work new, fresh today with each one of us. So what do we do? How do we accomplish all this? We seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to know how to reach this fallen world. Any of you guys been downtown? Last week we went to, I taught out in Cheney and then we went by the Spokane Valley Mall. And, and I literally had the, the, the verse about Lot that his soul being tormented go through my mind, just seeing all the lost people there at the mall. I mean, it, it's just crazy. Or if you go to a, a big city and, and you just see just how many people are so desperately lost. You look at that and, and almost from a human standpoint seems hopeless. There's no way that we can reach all these people. There's no way that we can make a difference. And yet, when you're being led by the Holy Spirit, you know that all things are possible through God. And, and I don't know if you guys have heard it, but I, I love that starfish example. And it's that, you know, there was, uh, the ocean had gone out so, so far, and it was like unseasonal, how it, how it had gone out, and there were just all these starfishes that were stranded and that were dying because they were not in the water. And this kid, and there's thousands of them, and this kid grabs a bunch of starfish and starts throwing them back in the ocean. And the dad looks at him and goes, you know, you're not going to make a difference. There's so many of them. And, and the kid just grabs another one and goes, but it makes a difference to this one, and throws it in. And so... Yeah, maybe we are not going to be able to save everyone that we see or bring them to Jesus, but we can do whatever we can with what God gives us. We can use the influence that he has given to us. Let's continue in uh, verse eight. It says, his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. I love that he has to keep saying that. (laughs) So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and washed. And so when I washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he says. And so it's funny how they're talking about him as if he's not even there. And so you can kind of see this is another part of that social stigma of being handicapped. They're talking right in front of him as if he's not even there. And, and yet you get the idea that he's kind of used to this. Imagine how many times other people, just like the disciples, walked right by him and thought, oh, this dirty sinner, he is being cursed by God. And that's essentially what the disciples were saying. They're saying, oh, who sinned so greatly so that he would be born blind? And I'm sure he was so used to just hearing that day after day and still just holding his hand out for change and, and uh, for money. And, and yet here he is, and he's got boldness now because Jesus healed him. And he doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care what people say. He is, he's healed and he's gonna let everybody know about it. 
And uh, it's funny though, because he can't quite explain what happened to him yet. He can't even quite explain who Jesus is or where he went. And it's like, you're asking where he is. I was blind five minutes ago. I don't know where he is. I didn't see him go away. (laughs) And so here he is just with the little bit of information that he's got, making a big stand. And he's saying, I am the one. And so this story is really one of the best examples that I can think of, of somebody using their testimony to declare the glory of God. It was so simple. You know, our testimonies as well, they're a powerful weapon in the hands of the Lord. In fact, Revelation 12, 11, this is talking about the, the tribulation saints, people who lived through the tribulation were martyred And it says that they, the martyrs, conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. They had victory over the threats of Satan. One, through Jesus's blood. Two, through the word of their own testimony. And that was that they knew that they were lost without Jesus, and when Jesus came into their hearts, that there was a change, there was a marked difference, and they knew that they had gone from death to life. And then from there, it says they didn't love their lives to the death. They would rather be put to death than to bow to the will of the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. And, and, and so that's how they gained victory. And notice that it says they conquered him. But in what happened on the earth? Well, Satan had killed them. They were martyrs there in heaven. And yet it says that they had victory because they did not bend to the will of Satan. They were the ones that conquered him because that's where Satan gains his victory. As soon as he can get us to fight the battles using his tools, that's all he wants. He wants us just to walk away from God's path and follow his path. And, And so these... These tribulation saints, they had the victory over Satan because of the blood of the lamb, first and foremost, because their sins are paid for, the word of their testimony that they knew that and that they didn't love their lives to the death. And so, and, and then again, uh, Peter encouraged the believers in 1 Peter chapter 3, these believers were, were facing major persecution, suffering, And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy and be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So each one of us, it doesn't say that we have to give some great sermon It says that we need to know our testimony. Do you know why you believe that Jesus is Lord? I sure hope you do. And and if you do, then you're supposed to share that. That's all, that we are ready to give a defense, an apologia, that's where we get apologetics, that we give a defense for the faith that we have and the reason that we believe. So how does this guy use his testimony? He simply shares what Jesus did for him. You know, he just got healed. He didn't have time to go to Bible college or seminary or, you know, he didn't know how to debate with skeptics. And he just 
knew what happened to him. He said, I was blind and now I can see. And uh, really, this is all we're being encouraged to do in 1 Peter. Share that reason for the hope that is in you. And don't think for a second that if you haven't had some incredible conversion story, like being blind and being healed, that God can't use your testimony. Because your testimony is powerful. You know why? Because you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Bible says that every single one of us, I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home and accepted Jesus before uh, you even remember, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and you have gone from death to life. And the funny thing to think about is that Jesus didn't need this guy's permission to heal him of his blindness. In fact, the guy never asked to be healed. Jesus just did it. And, and yet with each one of us, it requires us dying to ourselves and receiving him. And, and so that, the, the miracle of a changed heart and a changed life is much greater than the changing of physical eyes or a healing. And, and so your testimony is powerful. And, and so there are no bad testimonies. I've said it a whole bunch of times. The only bad testimony is someone who had a chance to receive the gospel and they didn't. That's a bad testimony. If you receive the gospel, if you believe in Jesus, you have a great testimony. Don't let anybody tell you differently. So let's continue here in, in verse 13. And, and this just gets, it's, it's almost like a comedy chapter. It's, it's hilarious how this all works out. It says, then they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. That day, Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. And you hear that, dun, dun, dun. like, oh no. Jesus could have healed him on any day that he wanted to, but he chose this day again to break them free of what they thought about God's word versus what God's word actually said. And then it says, then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them, and I washed and I can see. And, and he's probably thinking to himself, this is pretty easy. Uh, you, you guys aren't picking it up yet? Uh, okay, I'll keep going. And then it says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight. They thought it was a setup or a prank until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. <laughs> his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Aw, thanks mom and dad. <laughs> threw me under the bus. That's so lovely. But uh, it says here among the Pharisees that there was a division among them because some of them dared question the prevailing thoughts, the prevailing mindset of their day. 
they had decided, the powers that be decided that Jesus was evil and he needed to be dealt with. And those who dared go even question against the grain were immediately shut down. And you just see this happening so much in our world that wherever the testimony of Jesus is preached in truth, it is going to be bring division, unless you have a whole room of people that just hate Jesus. <laughs> but for the most part, whenever there's some kind of mixed company or, or people that are not saved who are feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit and, and really just wanting to investigate more and see what is really behind all this, it's, it's shut down so quickly and, um, and, and most of them are thinking, how dare you ever ask a question like that? Let's continue in, in verse 25 and it says, so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, he was I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> I love this guy. And then they ridiculed him. You're the man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of somebody opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Wow, he's preaching to them. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us. Then they threw him out, you know, like grown men. That's, that's how they do it. But here he is. He said, one thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. And I love how he responds to the pressure of the Pharisees. When they push hard against him, he's pushing just as hard back. In fact, he's pushing even harder than they were. And you can see this ramping up as it progresses. He's getting more and more in their faces. And guys, against the system of the world, this is how we have to be. And again, we make a distinction between the system of the world and the people in the world. But we don't back down. As, as the pressure ramps up and the intimidation and the threats and the coercion grows, we have to be that much more bold about our faith and about who Jesus is and his plan to save their lives. And we have to keep in mind too, though, that there's a difference between boldness and arrogance. And, and God has called us to be bold, to not back down, but not to be arrogant. Colossians 4, 6 puts it this way. Let your speech be always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. And this is talking about our conduct among non-believers, of, of people who, who don't believe in Jesus at all, that, that we are to be gracious, loving, gentle, just as the Lord was with us. That that is how he drew us in. It says, you know, by his kindness, that he has drawn us. We love him because he first loved us. 
That is how God is calling us to be in the world. And even in 1 Peter, when he encouraged us to to use our our testimony, to have a defense, he said, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So let our testimony speak for themselves, and as we minister to people, let it be done with reverence and gentleness, keeping a clear conscience, not having to go back and replay the situation in your mind and be like, wow, I really let that guy have it. I shouldn't have done that. But that we're, we're gentle and loving with people. Uh, verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked, Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. So this guy was just primed and ready. He just knew when this happened to him. I'm sure he had felt God speaking to him before this time and and didn't know exactly how God was going to use this. But as soon as he received that miracle and knew, he was just ready, okay, Where is this Messiah so that I can receive him? And it's funny, he didn't immediately put that together. (laughs) Oh yeah, it is you. You are the son of man. But, But Jesus told him, I am the son of man. And he said, I believe, Lord. And that's a conversion right there. He he was transferred at that moment from death unto life. Because that's really all it takes is us believing and speaking it. You believe it in your heart and you confess with your mouth. That is how salvation works. God didn't make it any more difficult than that because he wanted me to be able to understand it so that I could be saved. If it was any more difficult than that, if there was a third step, I would have failed a long time ago, but he made it simple. But then he goes on beyond that. And he said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. And so this seems like a really backwards way of talking and reasoning. And I'm sure there were a lot of people, as Jesus spoke in parables, I'm sure there was a lot of people that were just kind of confused. And rather than digging deeper and figuring out what Jesus was really saying, they said, that guy's crazy, and they walk away. And, and even in here, the Pharisees had a chance to just walk away and say, you're not making any sense. You're crazy, I'm out. And yet you dig deeper and you just see that, that those who say that they can see are blind and those who are blind will be allowed to see. And and what it means is when we think we know everything, when we think we've got it all figured out, our mind's not even open to asking God on his opinion about something, then the truth is that we're spiritually blind. And I'm sure we've, we've all been in that place at some point where we just think we know everything You can't question me on anything because I know it all. I actually, last week at the mall, saw a dad walking with his poor daughter and his shirt said, I don't need Google. 
my daughter knows everything. <laughs> like, I laughed out loud. I'm like, oh my goodness, yes. Um, yet when we come to God, admitting our own weakness, our unworthiness, and our spiritual blindness, that he's the one that opens our eyes and allows us to truly see. In Psalm 34, 18, and then followed by 51, 17, it says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. When we stand in pride before God and say, I know everything, you can't tell me what to do. I've got my own way figured out. God says, well, obviously you have no use for me then, do you? You can see everything just fine. Go your way. And yet the truth is that if we're doing that, then we're spiritually blind. And yet when we come to God, just empty hands and, and just knowing that we have nothing to offer, he says, that's everything you need. There's a great line in a, in a song that I love. It says that I've, if I've come without a thing, then I've come with all I need. And that's really all it is. It's just saying, I've just got me here, God. That's all I've got. And God says, perfect. We're going to use that. And so as we started, we, we talked about that this guy was somebody whose whole life was set aside for one purpose, and that was declaring the works and the glory of God. And yet he's not unique. Every single one of us has been a set aside in the same way to declare the works and the glory of God. Just as we surrender ourselves, as we give our hearts over to him, as we allow him to make the changes that he wants to make within our minds, within our hearts, within the way that we see the world, we see neighbors, friends, coworkers, enemies, as he makes those changes within our hearts, we can glorify him by simply walking with him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you are the one who makes this change within our lives. You've simply called us to believe you and to walk with you. God, I just pray that each and every one of us, if we haven't come to that point where we have believed and received, Lord, that that would happen today. Lord, that not another day would go where we're putting it off, getting right with you, being made right with you. God, I just thank you for everyone here and just pray that this church would be a light within a dark world. God, that we would shine wherever you put us, God, in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Lord, help us to shine for you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.